Good evening. I'm very thankful to see so many of you come out this evening. Great to see you. Hope you had a great day. I sure enjoyed my day with Bob and Christine and the kids. And Elizabeth even did a little concert for me at home, so I feel real privileged. So tonight, we're going, by the way, for we do, some people were asking this morning if I was going to have them out here. So we still have some books and DVDs left. They're out there at the table, so I'll be out there afterwards. And the Science versus Textbook Evolution and those which you know, you know about. Okay, today we're going to study about dinosaurs. So we can get our first picture up. <clears throat> I'm going to say something very, uh, what will seem preposterous, but don't, don't stop there because I'm going to say something afterwards. If I was talking to a certain group of people, I would say that there are no such things as dinosaurs. And so someone would say, oh, yes, there is, there is. I'd say, and I would say to them, really? Have you ever seen one? No. Science is what you see. What have you actually seen? And they'd have to say, we have seen fossils. I said, okay. Did these fossils represent animals that lived a long time ago, like back in the Civil War? Oh, no. Long, 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 long time ago. How do you know what they were called a long, long time ago? You see, dinosaurs, what's confusing to Christians is that six, the King James Version, which was completed in 1611, dinosaur fossils hadn't been found then. So the word dinosaur could not be in the Bible because the word dinosaur was not given to these animals until 1842. 1842. That's only a few years before American Civil War. So the reason you don't see dinosaurs in the Bible is because the word was not invented until 1842. But the people in the ancient world saw them, and they had a name for them, which you're going to learn about. That's what they really are. Okay? So in 1800s, people had some peace, not so much war, so it became exciting. People started discovering fossils, a variety of fossils, and everybody got into it. Young people and older people and professional people and doctors, everybody. It was exciting to find them, especially when those Christians realized that these were animals that were alive during before, seven days before Noah's flood. So these are ammonites. Ammonites are found all over the world. They were in they lived in the warm, shallow seas of the ancient world. And the ancient world did not have the deep Pacific Ocean that it has today or Atlantic. They had warm, shallow seas. So eventually, someone found a jaw, and they didn't know what to call it, but Dr. Buckland knew it was reptilian in nature. It was this big. It's now in Oxford uh, Museum. And so he just said, I'm going to call it he knew it was reptilian, so we call it Megalosaurus, which means great reptile. And then eventually started finding some more of this animal, and we came to piece it together. They found it was a carnivorous dinosaur. And then they found another one, Polycanthus, and Thecodonosaurus, and Cetiosaurus. And so they began to find, with all the other fossils on the Earth, these unique kinds of creatures. Okay? <clears throat> However, most of the people, then, then the word spread to, to England and, and Europe and uh, finally America. So a lot of people started looking for them, but basically the only people who really ever saw them were people who lived near New York so they could go to the American Museum of Natural History or the Andrew Carnegie Museum or somewhere in London. Most of us only saw Freddie Flintstone in the news comic books papers writing around on his uh, brontosaurus. But when Jurassic Park, the novel, was written, and the movie, dinosaurs boomed into worldwide significance. And I was at the, at, I was at the British Museum of Natural History the year, I believe, of Jurassic Park. And the line was, well, one, two, three, at least three times across this church for people coming in to see the dinosaurs. And I talked to one of the aides there, and he said, before Jurassic Park, there was no lines. You could just walk right in and look at the dinosaurs for 15 minutes to come out. So as a result, we have this fantastic uh, pictures all over the world of dinosaur art on the buildings and so forth. And furthermore, you have tons and tons and tons of dinosaur toys that many of you have had probably for your kids. And you've seen these little creatures. And the little kids can name at least four, five, six, seven, eight dinosaurs. 
And then <clears throat> along came what? Tons and tons and tons of books. And there are books for adults, young people, all the way down to the little ones at the bottom, says dinosaurs, and dinosaurs are different. These are the read and see books. And what do they, they have pictures of dinosaurs, and what do they say in the first sentence? Dinosaurs lived millions of years ago and never lived within the lifetime of human beings. That's their first sentence that they learn. So you see that millions of years concept is really coming in to the young people through dinosaurs. So we want to get that corrected tonight. And we'll begin with the book of Genesis, which is the most accurate book we have on the ancient, hist of the ancient history of the ancient world. And here we read, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. This means that God is the creator or the author of the mass, space, time continuum. The mass, space, time. Isn't it interesting that we really live in a tri-universe? Mass or matter, space and time. That matches God as a trinity. And each one of those is a trinity. Time is what? Past, present, future. Space is length, width, and depth. Okay? Then, on the third day, God created grasses, herbs, and trees. The three basic kinds of plants we have in the world today. Grasses, herbs, and trees. And then on the fourth and fifth, he begins uh, uh, creating the animal world. And so we read, And God made the beast of the earth after his kind. I actually have a book on dinosaurs, which is out of print for a while, and so I'm just finishing it. I'm putting it back in print. It's called The Real History of Dinosaurs. And in my book, which will be ready in about two weeks, um, and by the way, I forgot to mention this, mor this morning, but uh, for keeping up with what's going on, just join me on Facebook, and I'll be there, and you can get the in latest information. I have the Hebrew, the Hebrew for these words. There are, six, there are going to be six specific categories, and I have the Hebrew in my book for them. So God made the beast of the earth after his kind. This refers to the wild animals, the beast of the earth of the world, deer, leopard, sheep, large <clears throat> and small, the wild animals of the forest, the beast of the earth. Then, and cattle after their kind, the second group. And the cattle after their kind, as you read Genesis and Exodus and see the word for that, it does not mean, go ahead, only cattle. It does mean cattle, but not only cattle. You and I think of cattle as cattle. That's the word they use to translate. But the Hebrew word refers to more than that. It refers to horses, next, sheep, oxen, and camels. In other words, the category that today we would call livestock. Livestock. That's the second group. And then, and everything that creeps upon the earth after his kind. And for Genesis and the Psalm, you find there are two different kinds of creeping things when you read the Hebrew word. Those on the land, many, many kinds of them, insects, etc., etc., and those in the sea, crabs, lobsters, and so forth. That's the third group. Now notice, as I mentioned this morning, God made the beast of the earth after his kind, cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps upon the earth after his kind. Ten times God says, after their kind, emphasizing as I did, said this, as I said this morning, after their kind means that it's God is being very specific. He is communicating to us that each kind was created with the genetic program that made it able to produce its, reproduce its own kind indefinitely. And that's all the information that there is in the genes. The squirrels can produce various kinds of squirrels, but they're all squirrels. We have many <clears throat> species of woodpeckers, but they're all woodpeckers. That's all the information that they have, okay? That's what you see today. Each kind gives birth to its own kind. There's no exceptions. And science is what you see. Remember, evolution is not going on today. We have invertebrates, fish, amphibian. That's the same animals that God said he created in Genesis. So to convince you that the evolutionists have to say, well, it all took place past in the millions of years of the past, the millions of years past. See, today, you can argue with them toe-to-toe -to -toe and show there are no creatures halfway between fish and amphibians, and they, have, they lose. So how do they win the argument? They, get, they push the argument into an imaginary past in which their word is as good as your word. They said millions of years ago, there were transitions, and you say, no, there weren't. But see, now just their word against your word. In the real world, they can actually see that there are no transitions. <clears throat> and God created great whales as a translational error due to the fact that fossils of dinosaurs had been discovered then, so just we'll come back to this. <clears throat> and every winged fowl after his kind, referring to all the various kinds of birds. And then, 
and every living creature that moves with the waters bring forth abundantly after their kind. This refers to all the various kinds of fish life. Okay, so now we want to go back. In the English book, Bible, and God created great whales, in the Hebrew it says this, and God created great tanim, tanim, okay? Tanim, the plural, tanim, the singular, occurs 25 times in the Old Testament. So it's pretty popular, pretty popular animal or group of animals, okay? Next. Most of the time, it is properly translated in the American Standard or the King James as dragons. That's what they were. And they got the word dragon from the Greek, draco. The Greek draco, which means what? A reptilian-like being. Not a turtle, not a lizard, not a serpent, but something like them. That's reptilian. A reptilian-like being. A couple times, the, the very same word, atanim, that once they translated as jackal, once as whale. Those are errors, because you can't translate as a, ma a mammal one place and a reptile another. That's very inconsistent in, in linguistics. Okay? So... Here is examples of being done right. Isaiah 43:20. The beast of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owl. If you were reading a Hebrew book, you would read the tanim and the owl, except you'd have a Greek word for owl. Okay? So, that's, uh, just stay with, you'll go ahead of me. <coughs> yeah, that's it. So, this is the way it occurs all the way out of the Old Testament. These kind, there's many, many others, as you showed, at least 25 different references. Okay, now we want to convince you that the whale was a translational error, okay? So now, Moses did, was arguing with God because he had felt he was not able to deliver the children of Israel. And so God told him to cast it, uh, his rod on the ground. He cast it on the ground and became, God's word says, a serpent. And then eventually he was told to pick it up and it came a rod again. <clears throat> okay, the, Hebrew, the main word in the Hebrew for serpent is nahash. Nahash. That's the right Hebrew word for serpent. Okay, now in a minute we're going to look at Aaron. Aaron also had a rod. He was his brother. And Aaron went down before Pharaoh and he threw his rod on the ground because Pharaoh was not gonna, did not believe this. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should honor him, that I should respond to him. Who is he? So Aaron threw his rod down, and the Hebrew, the Bible, and the King James says, it became a serpent. Okay, then if you're reading a, if you're reading a Hebrew Bible, what you should read is what? And Aaron's rod became a Nahash, right? However, Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent, but the Hebrew Bible says Tanim. Okay, go back. Go back one. Moses' rod became a Nahash. Next, Aaron's rod became a Tanim. Obviously, two different animals. Okay? And if one is going to insist uh, that whale is the right translation, then we should read that Aaron's rod became a whale, right? However, next. That would have been, <clears throat> that would have got Pharaoh's attention, but it would have been a little incongruous, wouldn't it? So Aaron's rod did not become a whale, it became a tanim, which is a dragon. Now someone says, you know, I know a, I know a whale story, sort of a whale story in the Bible about Jonah. What about that? So there we see, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So the Hebrew word for a whale and or a large fish that could swallow a man is D-A-G, pronounced dog. See? So the Aaron, uh, Jonah was followed, swallowed by a dog, not by a whale. I mean, it's not by a tannin. See what I mean? So back. Go ahead. Next. No, no, I'm sorry. I meant to keep going. Sorry, my fault. So in the Hebrew, and God created great tannin, should have been translated, and God created great dragons. And those of you that have newer Bibles like the New English or NIV or something like that, if you look at the scripture, you'll probably read that God created great sea monsters, right? Have you looked at that? And that's better, that's better, because the Hebrew shows throughout the scripture that God created two kinds of dragons. The land dragon, such as Tyrannosaurus, and in the sea dragons. He mentioned the sea dragons specifically. God will break the heads of the dragons in the seas. 
So the word dragon appears, applies both to the land dragons, which you know as brontosaurus, etc., and to the sea dragons, which we now call what? Ichthyosaurs, plesiosaurs, mosasaurs, and pleosaurs. Okay? Next. And God said it was good, which means that every single animal was perfectly fitted to the environment. There was no need for improvement. So the survival of the fittest business was not in vogue at all. Everything was perfectly set. Next. <clears throat> so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And as you know, they were subjected to a test of volition with regard to God, what they should do and what they shouldn't do. And they failed. Next. Wherefore, as by, and the result is, wherefore, as one, by, one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death passed upon all men. And death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. That's the original sin. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world and death by sin. So death is the result of sin. And therefore, death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. That's the bad news, the good news. The bad news is that all of us are sinners because we're all the children of Adam. But the good news is that since sin is the cause of death, if God can resolve the sin problem, then he can resolve the death problem. And he resolved the sin problem by sending his own son to pay the penalty for our sins. And when we believe in him, he, he not only forgives us our sins, gives us eternal life, but accredits his righteousness to us. So by solving the sin problem, he resolves the death problem. But if evolution is true, if evolution is true, and many Christians have become theistic evolutionists, they believe in the millions of years, they believe that animals evolve from one to another by God's direction. If that was true, that means there have been millions of invertebrates that died 300 million years ago, millions of fish, millions of amphibians, millions of reptiles, mammals, primates, apes, and many millions of what? The ape men, Australopithecines, many of the men, millions of men ape, Homo erectus, before human beings actually came on the earth, which means if that's true, death has nothing to do with sin. And therefore, someone dying on the cross is not going to accomplish anything because death is a part of the natural world. So when people compromise, next, God's word says man's actions lead to death. The evolution is that there was thousands of years of death, bloodshed, suffering, and disease to bring man along. The lower creatures evolved finally. And Darwin, in the last paragraph of his book, says, through survival of the fittest and the war of nature, man, at last, is brought into existence. So it means millions of deaths before man come along. So the compromise of theistic evolution is a deadly compromise theologically. And it totally undermines the redemption of Christ. Next. <clears throat> Go, I'm going to skip this because time's going. Look. We're going to skip next to three. Go ahead, move. One more. One more. One more. One more. <laughs> Go ahead. Hold it right there. Here is a good evolutionist telling you what happened. Darwinist, this is Huxley. Huxley was his, his grandfather was Darwin's bulldog, Thomas Huxley. Watch. Darwinism removed the whole idea of God as the creator of organisms from the sphere of rational discussion. I think we can dismiss entirely all idea of a supernatural overriding mind being responsible for the evolutionary process. Now, Julian Huxley would be the first uh, president of UNESCO, very popular in this world, the secular world. He says, note the last sentence, I think we can dismiss entirely all idea of a supernatural overriding mind, theistic evolution, God overriding and developing the evolutionary process being responsible for the evolutionary process. The real evolutionists say, no way, God had nothing to do with it, period. Next. The Encyclopedia Britannica. God, Darwin did two things. He showed that evolution was a fact contradicting literal interpretations of scriptural legends of creation and that its cause, the cause of evolution, natural selection was automatic with no room for divine guidance or design. No room. Evolution, chance, and time did it all. Problems in that nature. Okay, next. Well, as a result of the sin problem, the earth became corrupt and the whole earth was filled with violence. And so, as I mentioned this morning, it got so bad and so bad that God had to take drastic measures. 
And God said that the wickedness of the man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, pornographic, crime, violence, continually. Next. And God told uh, Noah to make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt, shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And by the way, pitch, put pitching it, putting pitch on the outside is obviously going to keep the water out. But on the inside, too, was for preserving it. And I think God is going to preserve, preserve that ark until it's found somewhere in the very last days. But remember, if that ark had been found 50 years ago, it, it would have been sold in little pieces by now. It wouldn't be around anymore. So I think God is saving it for a right time. Next. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. So God is promising that he, it, isn't, it wasn't a comet, it wasn't a meteor, God brought the world, this uh, great flood upon the earth as a means of judgment. Okay, next. So someone says, all right, well, I believe that Noah could have got a rhinoceros aboard the ark, or chipmunks, or squirrels, or lions, or leopards, but now, <clears throat> next, that we have found these huge dinosaurs, how could they have gotten aboard the ark? Well, it seems like a bad, big problem, but it really isn't a big problem, because, next, we have not only found dinosaur fossils, we found dinosaur eggs. And the biggest dinosaur eggs that we have found are the size of a cantaloupe, which means these dinosaurs became 50, 100 feet long and weighed 50, 60, 70 tons. They began in a size of a cantaloupe. So they began very, very small. Next, here is a little dinosaur. This dinosaur, if he would have lived, would have gotten to be about 30 feet long. This is a platysaur, many of them found in Germany. I don't think you'd have trouble getting on the ark, do you? See, this little dinosaur was probably alive only three days to a, month, a week before the flood came. When, so the flood came, animal, the animals were in all different positions of life. There were old leopards, young adult leopards, teenage leopards, infant leopards, little freshly born leopards, and, and from the animals that laid eggs, like chickens, there were eggs, all right? They were in all situations. That's how I showed you this morning, dinosaur eggs, right? So no problem with this guy. Next, here's in Korea. Trackways found this year in South Korea show the marks of scores of tiny milling brontosaurs the size of calves. Now, brontosaurus, you know, is the big one, the long neck and long tail, 70 feet long and 80 feet long, weighing about 35 tons. But in Korea, it says what? That the tracks were the size of calves. That's only about this high, about this long. What does it mean? It means that these dinosaurs, at the time of the flood, were only about a month old. So the point is, God in his wisdom would have taken young members of every species aboard the ark for two reasons. First, for, for elephants and dinosaurs to save space. Why bring an 80-year-old elephant on the board, the ark, when you can bring a two-month-old elephant? But there's another reason, because even he brought young chipmunks and young squirrels aboard the ark, because you see, they were the only two that's going to go into the new world, and they have to be young enough to be reproducing squirrels and chipmunks for many, many, many years. So they wouldn't want to bring an old elephant or an old lion because they probably wouldn't be able to bear children anymore, period. So the young ones were brought aboard the ark. Next. So the flood began to flood the whole earth from one end to the other, the savannas, the jungles, the woods, next, until it covered the entire earth. And then, as scripture says, the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. The entire world, the entire cosmos, by means not of catastrophe, but of the Greek word is cataclysm, a gigantic series of catastrophes. Next. And then God has to get rid of the water. It rose for six months, and then God has to get rid of the water. What's he going to do with all this water? Here it is. The waters were standing above the mountains. Actually, they were actually 15 cubits above the mountains. Why 15 cubits? Because the ark would sink that much with all the load. So the ark would, would not hit on any mountains. The waters were standing above the mountains. At thy rebuke, they fled. At the sound of thy thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose, Himalayas, Andes. <clears throat> the valleys sank down to the place which thou established for them. So the oceans sank. The oceans before were warm, shallow seas. 
Now with all this volcanoes coming out, there's the displacement of matter, right? All those volcanic lava coming out, now there's a displacement of matter, and the oceans sink down. The Mariana Trench today is about 23,000 feet deep. In fact, the oceans are so deep that if you had a giant caterpillar, you could push all the hills and all the mountains into the sea, and they would sink without a trace. Next. So the water began to run off the earth because we have mountains lifting up and sea pushing down, so it creates runoff. Next. And the sea began going back into its place, as God said, leaving what? Seashells all over the place of the world where it flowed. Next. And behind it leaves what? Vast layers of sedimentary rock, which we learned about this morning. Because it brought in, this, <coughs> it came in, bringing the sand to the seashore for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of miles, deposited, became sedimentary rock, then it starts leaving again. So behind the sand stays there, why? Because it has become sandstone. If it had just been sand, it had been washed back out, see? But it stays there because it's now it's rock, right? Next. And leaving behind millions and millions and millions and millions of fossils. Do you know how many fossils we have in the museums of the world today? Approximately 200 million. And guess what? It's not in all of those 200 million fossils. There is not one fossilized creature between an invertebrate and a fish. They are either all invertebrates or all fish. Next. Now, every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, whatsoever creeps upon the earth after, the, after their kinds went forth out of the ark. So now they get off, and they're all going to do what? They're going to kind of mosey around, eat some food, and find in this new world, which is no longer mild to subtropical everywhere, because the whole thing has been changed, the water canopy's down, now we have polar regions and temperate regions and subtropical and tropical, so they can't live as widespread as they could before. So they're all moseying around, finding the place where they all fit in. But remember, God created them in them the ability to vary, right? So now God created them in this ability to have variation. So animals that lived in beautiful temperate to subtropical areas, such as caribou, now find that things are taking place in their body, which was already created there, so when they get in colder climates, it works perfect for them. Not a problem at all, because they, they had it already created in them. In other words, all over your, your town here and the big cities, they have buildings with little sprinklers for fire in the building, right? Well, a young person can look at those and say, when he's, the pastor's preaching and he's not paying attention, what, I wonder what those things are. They never do anything. The fans work, but what do those do things? Well, they never do anything until there's a fire. So what God created in the caribou and so forth never did anything, the genetic situation, until there was a need when they had to encounter cold weather. Next. So how about the dinosaurs? Behold now behemoth which I made with you. This is God taking, talking to Job. He eats grass as an ox. He moves his tail like a cedar. So God is talking to Job about a huge, huge animal called behemoth, which is a sauropod dinosaur. A sauropod dinosaur are the ones with the long neck and the long tail. Notice these facts. God says he eats grass as an ox. All of the sauropod dinosaurs are plant eaters. Diplodocus, Brachiosaurus, Cetiosaurus, they all ate plants. Next it says, no, go back. which I made with you, which means that man and dragons slash dinosaurs were contemporaries from the very beginning, which I made with you. And then it says he moves his tail like a cedar. That means he's got a long tail that tapers. Here we go, next. And this is a diplodocus, a long tail that tapers. So God refers it to a cedar tree. See, God could not use the word dinosaur. It hadn't been invented yet. So God has to describe it so we will know what he's talking about. Okay, next. Here's a, a secular book on dinosaurs. The tail of Diplodocus probably weighed several tons, just like a cedar tree. The length of the tail was 30 feet. So you have a tail that's 30 feet long, weighs several tons, a cedar tree. Perfect description. Next. There we go. Now we've got a problem. Remember the old, the old 
commentaries didn't know what to make of this. And so if you read the old commentaries, they say behemoth was an elephant or a hippopotamus, because that's the only thing they could think of that was around water. But look at that tail. Doesn't look, look, look much like a cedar tree, does it? However, let's try this. Here's a sauropod dinosaur. It's pretty obvious what Job was looking at. He wasn't looking at an elephant. Next. Now, he goes on. Lo, now his strength is in his loins. So if you don't give kids, you remember that animals walk on all fours, right? The loins of an animal is on their hind legs, their hind legs, not their front legs, right? So it says his strength is in his loins. Today's large animals, the bison, the elephant, and the horse, are gravaportal. Gravaportal, meaning their weight is equally distributed. That's why we have bucking broncos, right? They can go either way. The elephants can do that in the circus just as well. But God says this animal, its strength is in its loins. Next. There it is. Look at the difference between the hind legs and the front legs. Pretty obvious what Job was looking at, wasn't it? His strength is in his loins. Next. His bones were strong pieces of brass. His bones were like bars of iron. A paddlesaurus weighed 30 tons. The secular book says it also had legs built like pillars. Pillars are straight up and down, aren't they? It, Job's, God says to Job, it has bones like bars of iron. Straight. See? Next. Christopher McGowan is up in Canada. He's an evolutionist talking about dinosaurs. The bones, he talked about the sauropod dinosaur, the bones of both legs are straight bars of iron and fairly robust. Much like those of the elephant and the terminal positions of their articular surfaces show that they were kept essentially vert vertical. All reptiles today have a sprawling gait, right? The little lizards you see, we've got tons of them in Florida. But these reptiles, the big ones, had straight bars of iron, okay? Next. Now, we're going to, that's the first dinosaur seen after the flood. Job is after the flood. So now in Ezekiel, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his rivers, referring to a person, but relating him to a dragon because of his behavior and so forth. This is very interesting because time and time again today, when a paleontologist finds dinosaur bones, they will often say that they were associated with river channels because the dinosaurs... One of their main problems was the big ones in the tropical climate they lived in was overheating. They had their brains. Their brains would overheat in this tropical thing. So they were always associated with water. Behemoth, remember, where was, where was Behemoth if you read your book, your Bible? In the Jordan River. See, it was in the Jordan River. That keeps them cool so they can go out and munch on a few things and feel a little bit of heat. They can go right back to the water. So they were always close to water. And is that interesting? that God spoke, speaks to Ezekiel about the great dragon that's in the midst of Egypt's rivers, its waters. They go, and take a look at this. Next. We're talking, Supersaurus is one of those. Discover Magazine describes it as the plant-eating, river-wading giant. Next. Dinosaur National Monument, which I showed you this morning. The ancient bones are closely associated with river channels. God says to Ezekiel, they were the great dragon in the midst of Egypt's rivers. They went back to the rivers so they could keep cool in hot days. Next. Well, this one says Micah. Micah says, I will make a wailing like the dragons and mourning as the owls. Someone say, that could be a problem because no reptiles make much noise today except the little gecko of Hawaii. Well, not a problem. What you see on the board here is Parasaurolophus. Parasaurolophus is really unique because it has a hollow crest, a long hollow crest. Next. And for years and years, paleontologists figured out what was this hollow crest for. It was hollow. It had two tubes in the, in the fossil going from the nose up the crest, then coming back down the crest into the mouth. So they proposed, well, it was maybe used for a snorkel so it, could, it lived in swampy areas and could eat underwater. But and they discover, when they look at it real carefully, they see, no, the, way it me the mechanism is it could not function as a snorkel. So... What is it going to be used for? Let's take a close up. Here it is. By the way, that crest is six feet. These dinosaurs were almost from pole to pole here. The crest was six feet. So Dr. Weishample of Johns Hopkins University took a fossil of these, cut it in half, 
recorded it and looked at inside all this fossilized crest. And this is his conclusion. Lambiosaurian dinosaur crests are judged to have been conducive to resonation on the basis of an acoustic analysis of the structure of the nasal cavity. For you little kids, acoustic is acoustic guitars, right? And they make noise, right? So they were for the purpose of making noise. I will make a wailing like the dragons, God said. He said that thousands of years before dinosaurs were ever found. I will make a wailing like the dragons. And this has been well accepted. For instance, uh, Newsweek magazine. Listen closely and you can almost hear the ebbing of surf and the hooting, honking of dinosaurs. It's well accepted. Next. So finally we get to Malachi. God judged the country of Edom and laid his, his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. In at least three occasions, God judges countries to such an extent that he actually turns them over to the dragons. Meaning what? They were so destroyed that the people fled and they grew over with vines and the animals that came in were dragons and they're vicious so people didn't want to come in so they were just, became the haunt of dragons. Okay, now what's important about Malachi? Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament written about 250 years before Christ. So God's word is telling us in his own word that dragons were alive and well in the days of Malachi about 250 years before Christ. And the evolutionists say what? Dinosaurs became extinct 65 million years ago, which is nonsense, okay? Now, next. Well, at approximately the same century as Malachi, the Chinese had already incorporated the dragon into their artist motif and had already got to the place where they could modernize it. And there's little, and this is from China, and there's print there, little print down at the bottom. What does it say? Let's look up close. Next. The five clawed feet of the dragon identify him as a symbol of the emperor, the son of heaven. Non-imperial dragons had four claws. This is amazing. See, dra you can see, well, they just made them up. They saw some reptilian things, they call them dragons. No, not only did they know that their dragons were there, and they were eyewitnesses to them, but they knew that they, dip they had different numbers of claws. Now that you have to observe very, very carefully. And let's just watch here. Let, by the way, okay, dragon fingers. Tyrannosaurus has two. You probably know that if you've ever studied dinosaurs. Ceratosaurus has three claws. Allosaurus has four claws. Hypsilophodon has five claws. How about that? And the Chinese knew this, and they made laws. Only the, they had capes, as you know, and kimonos, and you could put symbols on them. Only the five-clawed dragon, they put five claws, five claws, referring to the dragon, could be worn by the emperor. Non-imperial dragons, that is people in the government could wear four, okay, next. The emperor could have five, members of the court and military, four, and the common people could wear three. If you had five claws and you were a member of the common people, you would be impersonating the emperor and would be subject to death. See, so isn't this a fantastic thing? These little facts are brought along the way. Next, <coughs> forward. We did that, let's go forward. Now, Henry Morris, the uh, founder of the Institute of Creation Research says, if one will simply translate tanim by dinosaur, every one of the more than 25 uses of the word becomes perfectly clear and appropriate, okay? But he's a Christian, so he's reading the Bible and he says tanim should be translated dragons or in American and new and uh, our modern time, dinosaurs, they're the same. Dragons is their old name, dinosaurs is their new name. But someone says, how, can you, who, how do you identify dragons and dinosaurs, really? How does that fit? Well, now we're going to quote from an evolutionist. This evolutionist is the man who has discovered more dinosaurs in the modern world than anybody. He is a Chinese. His name is Dong Juming, and this is, his, this is his book. The interpretation of dinosaurs as dragons goes back more than 2,000 years in Chinese culture. This evolutionist, who is a dinosaurologist, Top dinosaur just says dragons have been identified as dinosaurs. Dinosaurs have been identified as dragons. Goes back more than 2,000 years in Chinese culture. Next. Now, you're all familiar with Nebuchadnezzar, and you probably knew of his bragging and so forth and everything, but you didn't know these words because this is from the secular history. This is Nebuchadnezzar talking. 
Babylon, the exalted city, the city of the god Marduk, at the entrance of its gates, I set massive bulls and fearsome dragons. Now, bulls are real creatures, aren't they? It's, and Nebuchadnezzar was a genius. He built the hanging gardens of Babylon. He had an encounter with God. He became a believer. He wouldn't be so dumb as to try to scare people away with a fictitious animal that never existed. Because everyone would have known that. He put real animals, bulls and dragons, on his walls. Next. So here are the walls. Of, we've excavated Babylon. And here are the walls. Next. And this is what we find. These are known as the dragons of the god Marduk. And again, they were so common that they could take artistic license. Just like, just like Disney's mouse is not exactly like a mouse, but it's artistic license. A little Mickey Mouse, we all know it is a mouse, right? So that's what the people done throughout history. Next. Now, Jer God through Jeremiah has a prophecy for, for Babylon. And Babylon shall become heaps, a dwelling place for dragons. In other words, God used Babylon to punish Israel for their idolatry. But God knew that eventually they would go back to idolatry themselves, and God said he will punish Babylon and make it a dwelling place for dragon and heaps. Okay, well, we know about the dragons. Next. Now, this one, Africa, here are the heaps. Here are the heaps they discovered. What do you mean by heaps? Heaps of bricks that were broken down by the Persians when Babylon was destroyed. Those are the heaps. And eventually only dragons live there for many, many, many years. Okay, next. Africa produces elephants, but it is India that produces the largest as well as the dragon. Pliny is one of Rome's leading historians of the ancient world in the times of the greatness of Rome. Pliny is one of their main historians. And he says that Africa produces elephants. That's true, isn't it? Right? But he says India also does produces elephants, which is true, isn't it? There's two kinds of elephants in the world today, African and Indian. And then he goes and say, as well as the dragon, right? And by the way, uh, fossils of dragons, dinosaurs have been found in India. Okay, next. But that was written, could you go back just one, minute, one time? That was written, what, AD 70. That's the time of the fall of Jerusalem. Okay, next. Alien, who write, wrote his book, The Phrygian History, also states that dragons are born, which reach 10 paces in length. He wrote it in 220 AD. That's when Christians were being persecuted in the Roman Empire. Next. Jordanus writes, these dragons grow exceeding big and from their mouths cast forth a most pestilent breath. The wonders of the East were written in AD 550 at the time after the fall of Rome, which fell in 476 AD. Next. Gracchus, who later named the city of Krakow after himself, slew an immense dragon. Ulysses Aldrovanus, the historian, wrote this book in 1570, after the Middle Ages. And as you go down, there's more than these we could bring up, but as you go down forward in history toward our time, you, you don't hear of great quantities of dragons. God said he's going to judge Jerusalem and Edom by uh, making them a dwelling place for dragons, hundreds of them. But as you come down toward our time, there's only a few. Notice. Krakow slew an immense dragon because they are dying out as they go into the new atmosphere and the new world to get down to tribe, smaller tribe, smaller group, pretty soon two or three left. Next. So here's our, we're going to end with this in just a few minutes. This is Ankylosaurus. Ankylosaurus is an armored dinosaur. They're two kinds. They're armored from head to tail. And they're plant eaters. So the armor is very important because the carnivorous dinosaurs or other creatures, saber-toothed tiger or whatever, could eat them, but they're covered with armor from head to tail. Notice they have a big tail club on the behind. These, these animals were 20 to 25 feet long. The tail club was this big, solid bone. So as their defense, someone comes to bite them, and they smack with all their power, being weighing four or five, six tons, smack that leg with that thing and break the leg. So, but notice that ball on the thing. It makes it look very unique. Now, if I would pass out crayons to you and say, or a, or a little slate with some chalk, Say, will you draw this so that when you show it to your neighbor, they won't think it's an armadillo or a turtle or an alligator, right? So you would remember to put that ball on the end, right? Okay, in 1924, the Museum of Ancient History, Museum of, in Oakland took people to, in the Supai Canyon of the Grand Canyon to look for ancient Indian petroglyphs. There's what they saw. The animal at the top, low flat head, just like the ankylosaur, body like a turtle, on the end, a big ball on the end. There's no animal like that in the world except the ankylosaur. 
And they also saw this. Next. <clears throat> this din dinosaurologist will tell you that many of the bipedal dinosaurs, bipedal dinosaurs are, are dinosaurs that have longer hind legs and shorter front legs, like Iguanodon, Camptosaurus, things like that, which meant they, they, they walked around on their hind legs and then they reach down and pick up shrubbery with their mouth and with their hands. And they often, the paleontologists said, they probably often sat back on their tail as a tripod to eat. And here you have this one doing that. Now notice, these are evolutionists who went down there. And notice what the director has to say. The fact that the animal is upright and balanced on his tail would seem to indicate that the prehistoric artists must have seen it alive. Otherwise, they would be show them down like dogs and so forth, like all other animals. Now, this guy, all these people were evolutionists, but this one man, the director, came to the conclusion that dinosaurs, he still believed in evolution, but he came to the conclusion from what he saw down there in the Supai Canyon was that dinosaurs must have lived at the same time as some humans. So he wrote this book, which you see, Discoveries Related to Prehistoric Man, but Harvard, Yale, all of them had made up their mind, dinosaurs, went extinct 65 million years ago. So he was totally ignored, even though he was the director of this thing, was himself an evolutionist. They ignored him. It was not fit, that didn't fit their little scenario. Next. So here's our last one. 1181 AD, 1181 AD, not too far back. A Cambodian prince, in those days Cambodian was a developing empire, built three palaces one for his wife. This one here, he was the Ta Prom Temple was built especially for his wife. Now what did he build him out of? Noah's flood washed in all kinds of material, right? Including sandstone. So sandstone is kind of easy to chip. So he built the whole temple out of sandstone, all right? And that was 1181. So what happens to pagan civilizations? They grow, they flourish, and pretty soon when they get too bad, God judges them, they get diseases and pretty soon the people leave and vines go over all the buildings and so it was lost to history. But, f but thankfully, finally in the 16th century, missionaries and explorers were over in that area and they saw this great sand, they, they clawed their way through the vines and saw this huge, beautiful sandstone temple and it was ornate, beautiful with curved doorways and all kinds of decorative things carved into the things. And they wrote two books about it. And this is what they said. Next. Jocks writes, an animal which bears a striking resemblance to a stegosaur is there. Now, this was in a rondelle. Okay, here, here it is. There's a rounded walkway you can go through. And when you walk through, there's, they carved out of the sandstone round things which we would call donuts, okay? Donuts with a hole in it. And in the hole, they carved what was important to them, a tree, a symbol of their deity, various animals or monkeys. And these guys report that one of them is a stegosaur. And when was this made? In 1181. Okay, next. This is a stegosaur, all right? That's a plated lizard. Now, if that would have been just a quote-unquote dragon, people would say, oh, they heard these fictitious stories about dragons, so they created some reptilian thing and they put it in there. But nobody could have imagined this animal unless they had seen it. No one could have imagined. So there was no imagination there. No one could have imagined this. And this is the animal that's in the rondelle. Next, there it is. And this picture was taken by my friend who was a creationist who went over, there, who heard about it, and went over there in person and took this personal picture. He was right there, so it's a real thing, and it's carved in the sandstone. So that means in 1181, stegosaurs were alive and well. Are they? Are, no guy, no person could have imagined this who had never seen these kind of dinosaurs before, right? Next, next. So in, in ending this, we have three words. Tanim, dragons, and dinosaurs. What's the difference? The Hebrew word is Tanim, which is the word translated throughout the ancient world of Babylon as dragons. These animals were dragons. But over time, they became extinct, and people thought, never, never knew anything about them. They were totally, except for the Bible and ancient literature, 
No one even knew what they were. But finally, in the 1800s, when these fossils were dug up, they realized they, this strange animal, what are they going to call it? So they called it a dinosaur. They should have called it a dragon. But they were into evolutionary thinking then and so forth. So dinosaur simply means what? Terrible reptile. Terrible reptile. It's not a really good name because there are a lot of terrible reptiles. What about the boa constrictor and the python and the alligator? So anyway, that's how they had the confusion today. What we had on the earth that God created are, mega, are, dinos, are dragons, and we had the whole ancient world referred to them. But when they were found in modern time, they were assigned this new word dinosaur, and it's not in the Bible, of course. So in conclusion, I hope that this will be a, a good help to you understanding the real history of dinosaurs. They did live. They were on the earth. And by the way, remember mega groups? Fish were a mega group, right? There are, how many species of fish are? A lot of them, right? Birds is a mega group. How many species of birds? But whale is not a mega group, is it? It's one specific species, like a, like a skunk. So, but dinosaurs is a mega group because, conservatively speaking, we have found today at least the fossils of 340 species of dinosaurs. That's a mega group. So, again, as I said this morning, uh, the wonderful thing about all of this is they have been used for evolutionary propaganda, but when the theory is subjected to scrutiny, you see the facts support the scripture. 1181, the stegosaur on the wall. They did not become extinct 65 million years ago. They were, they were witnessed by human beings way up to about 1100 AD and in the Bible up to Malachi. And furthermore, they are not evolved from lower creatures over millions of years ago. They're not only mentioned in the Bible, but they're one of the six mega groups in the Bible. So I hope that will be a great encouragement to you to get the story straight in your mind, which in the end will help you realize how accurate the book of Genesis is. Remember, I will make a wailing like the dragons. He said that the thousands of years before they're ever found, how accurate the book of Genesis is. This is the book that is the real history of the earth, and thankfully we can put our trust in it because it's the foundation for all the rest of the Bible. The foundation for the rest of the Bible, and you look at it historically, it's found to be uh, supported by the facts of nature. And this gives us great hope for our confidence in God and for our confidence in Christ and for our confidence in our salvation. God bless you.